If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Anything you want to say before we jump into the questions list? No, but thank you so much for those of you that sent questions in. Absolutely, and just continue to invite anyone who's got some questions and are afraid to ask to go ahead and don't be afraid to send them along. But got some interesting ones tonight, so let's jump right to it. First one says... My husband lives in another state, and he travels a lot. He has been unfaithful to me three times. We are working on trying to recover a friendship after the third affair that happened three and a half months ago. He is trying hard, but he still lied. How do I know how to really trust him if I cannot see him every day and check at his improvement? How do you think our, our talks on the phone should be? He is very hurt. His kids don't talk to him and don't want anything to do with him now. I do want for things to be better. It's hard to say goodbye to 34 years of marriage, but the pain is still there every time I remember what he did. So sorry. Yeah, that's that's a tough situation. I mean, I think first and foremost, there's got to be a way for you to to have some accountability on his part. Um, you know that you know at this point, given that the last affair just happened three and a half months ago, and that he's still alive. Yeah, trust is. You know, you have really no reason to trust him. Even if he started being completely trustworthy right now, it's gonna—it would take some time for that to sink in. Um, but you're gonna have to kind of experience a, you know, a, a season of safety before that can really, really sink in. Um, you know, I would want there to be sort of a, a, you know, the more the burden on him for providing accountability to you, whether that's, you know letting you call wherever he is and him, he'll take... Oh, I really think it would be so helpful if it was on somebody else's shoulders that he involved uh, another man. Yeah, absolutely, that, that that he has someone else in there who's providing some accountability that he's talking to. You know, for a lot of people, um, I don't want to be too, too flippant with this option, but we do use the polygraph sometimes with, with clients for... Um, you know, maintaining or, or demonstrating truth and, and safety, even if there hasn't been any in in, in some time, um, and that certainly would be an option. You know, and, and certainly if it's a case where he doesn't, you know, if one of the things with the dynamics sometimes is people can lie to themselves and start drinking their own Kool-Aid, and and you know that might be a way to help him to to be a little more accountable too. But yeah, there's got to be some some mechanism in place for you to be able to to check up on him. I know he's hurt, and it's sad and it's hard when the kids don't don't want to talk to you. Um, but you've got to see that he's committed to to working on this and to being trustworthy, and that he's following through with it. That it's not just sort of hoping things will will get better. Yeah, and and I just have a few thoughts about this. Um, one is. This is a repeated pattern of behavior. 
Um, and I wonder what he would say about why he keeps having affairs. Um, because a person who has an affair um, can be going through a very, very different mental process or lifestyle than somebody who has a repeated pattern of affairs. And so I would really want him to be willing to look at that. Um, Sometimes when I have somebody come in who's been unfaithful and they don't know why or how, and and sometimes they really don't, I'll ask them to read Shirley Glass's book, Not Just Friends, um, and have them highlight where they see themselves so they can see um, how it is they keep doing this and how are they going to do life differently so they are going to be faithful. Um, People who want to be faithful aren't necessarily able to just because they want to. Um, Because first, you have to know a person really wants to be different. Then you have to know they're able to be different. And then it has to happen consistently for a while before you can begin to believe it. But the other thing I would say is that Not wanting to lose the marriage is different than wanting to be different. Um, There are people out there who do not want to lose their marriage, but at the same time, it doesn't mean they have the kind of commitment to fidelity or monogamy that their spouse needs them to have. Um, And I... I have no doubt he's very hurt. Um, One of the things I wonder about is if he's able to see the hurt that he has caused you and his children. Um, Because the hurt goes both ways. And I'm sorry that this is such a, a sticky and tricky situation, but the idea of a polygraph is certainly... Um, something that could be looked at. Um, That can be a helpful way for a couple to begin to redevelop trust. Um, The other thing is, is he seeing a a therapist as he's living in another state? Um, I don't know how long he has been living in another state. I don't know if he would be willing to... um, consider a job change so he could come home and you guys could work on this together. Um, I completely understand why you wouldn't want to say goodbye to 34 years of marriage, and I hope you don't have to. Um, I just think it's really important for him to take the responsibility to show to you that he's doing life differently so you are able to begin to believe that he really wants a monogamous relationship with you the way you want with him. Absolutely. You don't want to be put in a position of having to be his probation officer or always be sort of pursuing him. Right. 
So going on to the next question, I am in the midst of going through a divorce after 28 years of marriage. I'm so sorry. Because my husband asked for a divorce on Valentine's Day. Ouch. Yeah, that hurts. I also found out he was having an emotional affair with a CPA he employs. They've had dinners, drinks, um, phone calls, texting, expensive gifts, um, New Year's Eve dinner, all secrets kept for me. Devastating, of course. That is devastating. I'm so, so sorry. I want to write her a letter, not that she is the only one to blame, to ask why she would do what she has done knowing he had a wife and children. I want her to know who I am and that I am a real person with feelings. I know this is a normal feeling. Help me to understand why this is not a good idea. Give me some common sense not to do this. Well, I don't know if this is particularly common sense, but um, after working with many, many betrayed spouses over many, many years, um, I know that most people in the betrayed position, and I've been there myself, really believe that um, somehow helping the affair partner understand what they have done, they think it's going to help them. But it doesn't. Um, This person was obviously willing to engage in this behavior um, with a man that she knew was married. Now, I don't know how she has made that okay in her head, but if you call her and tell her, what she has done to you and how this has impacted you, she's likely only to think poorly of you. And that seems unimaginable, but I have seen it over and over and over and over. Um, She probably doesn't care about your feelings right at this juncture in her life. Um, Otherwise, she either would have never engaged in this behavior or she would have tried to stop it before it came to the point where your husband was um, desiring a divorce. I've seen affair partners actually be cruel to spouses. And so instead of getting some sort of satisfaction and closure, you have a whole other level of pain and confusion to work through just for your own healing. Um, I'm trying to think of, of other reasons. No, I, I mean, but I, generally, it it's used against you, and it hurts you further. Absolutely. I've, I'm totally with Leslie on this one. I've, I've never seen it, it work out well. <clears throat> I mean, I can certainly understand the, you know, the pull or the drive because it feels like it's going to create some closure for them to be able to understand the pain. But they're usually living. Or some empathy. Right. But they're usually living in an alternate reality. They're, um, you know, either they don't have a real conscience to begin with, or they had to find a way to sell to themselves that what they're doing wasn't bad, or, you know, and very often they'll do that by creating the case that that he did, you know, that his needs weren't being met, that she didn't know how to love him, and and 
and I did and all of that. And or his wife was crazy, which you feed into by making exactly. The and and you know and so they'll sometimes take that and and look at that and go, oh yeah, she really was needy and clingy and and crazy crazy and um. And it just sort of in some ways helps them to justify why they did what they did. I mean, another reason I have a problem with it is this person is not safe. And to, to expose your feelings like that makes you incredibly vulnerable with a person who, who's not safe with your vulnerability. You're, you're opening up your heart, your feelings, your hurts to this person who could care less about them. And, you know, and I just wouldn't want you to to be that exposed with an unsafe person. And and because it's it's not a two-way kind of interaction. That person's not going to be vulnerable with you and they're in most cases not even going to be anywhere near truthful or honest with you. Um even if they respond, it's I just think it's it's best to to shy away from that cuz cuz yeah, they're just not safe. Absolutely. And and the one thing that I would add to this is there is great usefulness in writing a letter to this person that you're not going to send because that can be very, very therapeutic for you. Um, so writing the letter and not sending it can help you. Writing the letter and sending it, um, I've never seen it help. I've only seen it hurt. Yeah, but understand the temptation. Oh, yeah. So our next question says, my wife was the unfaithful spouse. We talked for an hour to help her understand that of the two of us, she was the one who had huge leverage in the relationship now. She couldn't see that. She thought that these things gave me leverage. I could divorce her according to biblical standards and so forth. And then I explained to her that she'd already demonstrated a selfishness strong enough to have an affair, a mind devious enough to keep it for a secret, uh, and found out not knowing or and certainly now knowing how I found out could be even more secretive, an ability to self-deceive enough to believe that staying physically in the marriage but not but leaving emotionally and intimately was in some way never planning to leave, and other attributes that showed a very dark side of her to me. So I explained that it shows she was already able to hurt me in the deepest ways for her selfishness. We argued some more about it, and so my question is, so hard for the unfaithful to see their huge leverage over the hurt spouse. Can there ever be fair and honest negotiations over important decisions in life, like moving, job changes, moving for the sake of leaving behind a tainted metro area, seeking new jobs and new home areas so that life can start away from triggers, roaming affair partners and reminders that there's new things to learn, new challenges to replace old ruts? If my wife, we homeschooled, is so used to running the household and shepherding the kids, had so much influence over my life, like what we own, what we eat, a large part of my social life, how will she learn to let me have more influence, especially influence so that I can have some new and refreshing views of life? The unfaithful are used to controlling everything, complete control before, the dribbles of information after D-Day. And let's say we are having a good recovery. Blame is accepted, information is being shared, pain is being abided, suffering is being accepted without being transferred back to the unfaithful. How can the unfaithful let go of control over the lives of their hurt spouse? What does the timeline look like where they can start accepting some of their losses? Thanks for considering my question. And I guess my first way of, of answering this, and, and by the way, I'm you know glad that you didn't go into some kind of revenge mode or something to try to recoup what, what you feel like is sort of lost leverage or lost power. Um, a lot of men do that. 
and, and I'm glad that, that you haven't crossed that line because I've never seen that work out particularly well before either. Um, it just tends to create more pain and conflict. But it's, it's a really intriguing question. In fact, I think if we put a bunch of infidelity experts together and, and had a debate, that would be a really interesting debate about who ultimately has more leverage in this situation. Because, you know, you know, as you say, you have, have sort of the, the biblical leverage over her and, and, and so forth. But, um, yeah, she does have a lot of leverage herself. But I guess the way I would answer this um, you know, that there's leverage both ways, but I don't know that leverage is necessarily a helpful dynamic to, to look at here. I mean, power dynamics and so forth are always interesting in relationships, um, but, you know, I don't know if, if two experts in infidelity would ever come to a consensus on really who has ultimately more power here. I know for a lot of betrayed spouses, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I hear is that the, un, the unfaithful partner feels like the betrayed has all the leverage because they have the nuclear option the ultimate trump card to throw out in every argument that, you know, we can be arguing about, you know, what's going on with the kids and everything, and the, and the betrayed can say, but you betrayed me, boom, you know, there's the ace on the table, nothing can beat that. Um, but I guess, you know, going back to how I would answer this, I would actually try to shy away from, from the leverage discussion altogether. Because I think ultimately, if, if you're getting to a place of healing in this recovery, um, it's, it's more about empathy and partnership. It's not about sort of re-establishing some equilibrium in, in power dynamics. I mean, I think you certainly want to be aware of, of you know, kind of what's going on with that and, and the feelings around the perceived power with all of this. But ultimately, I think a mature healing is where it's not about power. I think, to me, a mature forgiveness is about relinquishing any sense of leverage. Um, or, or kind of any sense of, of power. I mean, dynamically, absolutely, it can do all sorts of things to, to a relationship, and we have to be able to, to engage those things and, and work through those things. But um, I have some reservations about sort of looking at it from a, from a power perspective or a, a leverage perspective. Yeah. Um, as... You are experiencing a pain that I think is indescribable and excruciating. I think it's really important for you to every day know that she cares about your pain, that she um, has figured out how she got to where she got, what she's going to do to ever keep it from happening again, and that she is by your side trying to help you recover and that she cares about all of this. Um, I don't know what your marriage was like before this, but I know that at the end of the day, each side of a marriage needs to know that their perspective has value, that they have a voice that is listened to and cared about, and that the other person has tried to be in their shoes. And so um, I think it's really important for her to be able to try to be in your shoes, understand how this is so excruciating, painful, and undoing. 
And I think ultimately, as you know, that um, she cares about your pain. She's committed to her own recovery and making sure that she's never going to do this again. I think all the other concerns that you have will begin to fall away. But I am so, so sorry for for the situation that you're in. Yeah, it's, it's an awful place to be, no question. So uh, the next question. Um, everyone has lots of questions about their individual situations. That is true because every situation actually can be so incredibly different. Um, if you were to design a recovery, what would it look like? Um, and and the person who asked this question has some ideas about some some building blocks. And as I say that I think every um, recovery is individual depending on personality, circumstances, um, and culture, um, past trauma, um, and various different factors, I do think there are some basic um, things that are really important in recovery. And as we lay out in the workbook, Forgiveness is imperative, and I don't think forgiveness has to happen at a certain time or be done um, by a certain time, but for an unfaithful person to truly recover, they need to commit to forgiveness. Um, and and that's for your own well-being, regardless of what your spouse does or doesn't yeah, do. Yeah, regardless of the marriage is going yeah. to work or not. Now, if, if both people are trying to work on the marriage, then um, I do think EMS is a really useful thing to attend. Um, I think it's helpful for um, it to happen sometime after the first month. Um, because in the first month, the unfaithful person often um, isn't quite on board. Um, but even if they are, the betrayed person is probably still in shock. And so, um, yeah, the 24-hour rule is is something that um, I see that you mentioned and certainly think that that's an important thing to implement Um important for the betrayed spouse to know the unfaithful person is committed to being honest. And um, sometimes it can be very frustrating because it seems like information dribbles out. And so sometimes for the unfaithful person to sit down and on paper construct a timeline can, can be very, very helpful too. Um, in terms of the unfaithful doing the hope for healing, I think the ideal time for them to do that is when they think they're ready for it. Now, if you go months and months and they're still incredibly ambivalent about their own recovery, um, then Hopefully, 
finding a qualified therapist who can help you construct your individual recovery map will be more helpful than anything I can share. Um, but I, I certainly um, am glad that you're in Harboring Hope. I'm sorry that you qualify. Yeah, I mean, and, and I would agree with Leslie. It's a, you know, recovery is, is in some ways more of an art than a science. Um, and, and it does vary from person to person, but you put together an excellent list. I mean, your list, disclosure, discovery, full honesty by the unfaithful, cutting off repair contacts, forgiveness, not trying to decide to recommit until 18 to 24 months, et cetera, et cetera. These are all, you know, excellent building blocks for, for people. I mean, you know, a couple I might add is that, you know, at some point there has to be a, a mature commitment to working on it, that that nothing happens passively in this process, that it's not just sort of a sort of passively going through the steps and, and doing it. You actually have to really engage the work. Um, and, and I'm saying that more, well, I guess you're saying it from both sides of the equation and, and reminding people that, you know, recovery isn't just about getting the, the unfaithful partner to a place of stability. There's a very real recovery path for the hurt spouse, whether they, again, stay married or not. But, but part of it, too, to me, is accepting responsibility and, and I would even say sort of accepting powerlessness um, that, you know, in, in the 12-step tradition, you know, the first step is really kind of getting to the place where I can humbly recognize I can't do this, that, you know, and then the second step then is there's a, you know, recognizing there's a power higher than me that can restore me to sanity. But there has to be sort of a, a humbling that, that that happens with the recovery process. That it's not about how how well we work it per se, but but you know, kind of how much can we we surrender and accept our powerlessness with with the whole process, and and you know, kind of come from a place of humility. And I think um, you know you can be humble without being humiliated in this process. But but I think you know I've I've said this on on the conference call before, you know, my favorite definition of mental health is Scott Peck, who said, you know, mental health is nothing more than a commitment to reality at all costs. And um, I, I think, you know, particularly in the recovery journey, it's being able to sort of honestly and accurately look at not only each other and what's happened, but to really look at ourselves in a, in a humble way of, of genuine self-awareness where we can sort of take off all the, you know, all the protections and, and really get to the, to the sometimes ugly core of, of what we're dealing with here. But, um, yeah, I, I pray that you'll find sort of the right, the right path for you. And, and um, you know, as Patrick Carnes, he wrote a wonderful book on recovery called, you know, A Gentle Path Through the, Through the Twelve Steps. But he, he sort of reminds people that, it's, you know, even, even recovery can sort of be done addictively where you have to, feel like you do it perfectly and do it the right way and the, the right sequence when, you know, I think sometimes it's just humbly um, humbly and gently sort of working the process that, that's necessary for you. Yeah, and, and one thing I would add is how long before making major decisions like moving out of town, um, the, the how long to, before making major decisions um, to me is is maybe a little bit broad, and it, it might depend on, on the decision and the consequences. But in terms of moving out of town, 
Um, making a decision that big, I think, is better if you wait about nine months to a year um, because it's easy to think that changing locations is going to bring healing, but actually healing um, may not happen just because you change locations. And so uh, making a decision like moving before you have a good level of healing may actually um, get in the way of good healing. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, thank you. Our next question says, a coworker friend of mine of the opposite gender has problems with their spouse. The problems are personal, medical, and interpersonal, but not infidelity. Can you recommend a book or website that can help my coworker deal with the significant challenge of a difficult marriage and spouse that does not already include, as far as I know, infidelity. I don't want to point to a fair recovery for a pre-affair solution or situation, since that will obviously point out what my marriage is going through. Help me point someone who is not already suffering from an affair to get help for their marriage. I'm tired of being turned to. It's hard to recover when someone is bringing their problems to me as, as well. And you know, I guess my, my immediate response would be, um, probably don't have enough information here to recommend specific resources, probably have to know a little bit more about what's going on in the, in the marriage. You know, one of my generic favorite marriage books is a book called How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong um, that sort of turns, turns the, the question on its head of instead of trying to fix our spouse, trying to look at how do we fix us. But a couple things I'm, I might want to mention in your situation. You know, first of all, since you're you're already going through your own stuff, you know, I would invite you to, to feel like you have permission to set boundaries with this person that um, you don't have to be there for them. I mean, I know it's, it's, a, it's a kind thing to do and, and, and all of that, but, you know, I, I remember when I was going through infidelity, it was a good day when I could get out of bed and tie my shoelaces correctly. Um, you know, you just don't have a whole lot of bandwidth for taking on other people's problems. But, uh, you know, and I have a little more you know, kind of pressing concern with that as well. Um, you know, one of the, the primary ways that, that infidelity starts, actually, is for two people of the opposite gender to start talking about issues in their marriage. And, you know, even with the most loving intent, um, you know, you got to recognize that at some level you may be vulnerable, and even if you don't feel that vulnerable, this person very well could be. If, if the other, you know, the person of the opposite gender is having problems in their marriage, they can be very emotionally fragile or very emotionally vulnerable, and any kindness on your part can easily be misconstrued as, as emotional attachment or uh, all kinds of things. I mean, we've, <laughs> Leslie and I did um, a Harboring Hope group one time that was, that was mixed gender for a retreat weekend, and, and it was sort of like dynamite in that room because you have a whole bunch of emotionally distraught men in a room full of emotionally distraught women, and you know, it was all we could do to keep people from, from hooking up. It was, um, it, it's, a, it's a dangerous place to be, particularly when you're, you're emotionally vulnerable yourself. And, and I would you know, just not want you to have to either have that burden or, or potentially that temptation. You may have no attraction for this person or anything, um, but that you can't control what they might have for you. And um, it, it's a fine jump sometimes for someone to start feeling an emotional dependency on you, to them to start 
feeling a physical attraction towards you. Yeah, I appreciate that you're the kind of caring person who would want to help a coworker. Um, but as John mentioned, you have your own stress. You have your own burden. And you also have your own vulnerabilities. Um, as John mentioned boundaries, potentially gently saying to this person, you know, I am so sorry that you're going through this. I have a lot on my own plate. Um, and turning them to a different person or a different direction because ultimately it's going to be important for them to take responsibility for finding their own resources. Um, and as a caring person, that may be uncomfortable for you. And so it may be something that you really have to work towards. But, um, but I don't know the situation that this person is in, if they're in a church, if they have family, if they have friends. But I don't want you to feel like you need to shoulder their burden. Um, because as we said in, I think, the first chapter of Harboring Hope, um, the workbook, going through recovering from your spouse's infidelity is like having a full-time job that you're not getting paid for and that you don't want. Um, and so trying to take on anybody else's burdens at this point is is just too much, and that applies to to all of you. So um, certainly wish you well on that. Absolutely. Next question. I was at my husband's place visiting a week ago. We live in different states, and he received a letter from his affair partner, and I opened it. It was like she was trying to get him back by saying the right words with a lot of admiration. She was telling him how... This pause was going to be hard, but she was going to do it, but she could not wait all her life. Some details about the treatment that she received from him, which was very hurtful to know, because those things that she said that he did with her were missing in most of our marriage. I'm so sorry. And he did these things with somebody that he just met eight months ago. Pictures all over the letter from where they have gone on road trips out of the country, in his place, etc. When he came back from work that day, I confronted him and he said that she misunderstood him because he finished the relationship. Um, when he finished the relationship, he clearly said it was over forever. Do you think that he might be telling me the truth? And indeed, she was trying to manipulate the situation by writing a letter reminding him of all the great times they had and that they should not let that go and all the nice words she used to mess with his mind and making him rethink it, or he might be lying again. How should I take this letter? Um, you know, that's a really, really confusing situation because either is equally possible in my thinking. I think the chances that he told her it was over are as good as um, the chances that maybe he was vague and she didn't understand. Um, 
the chances that she understood it was over and she's writing this letter to get him back are just as good as the chances she didn't understand what he was saying or that he said a pause. And, and I don't really know how you can sort through this. Um, effectively, I don't know if you guys are in counseling together. I don't know um, if you have access to his computer, his emails, um, his phone records. I don't know if he has opened up um, the things that he does, so you are welcome to, uh, to see whatever you need to see. Because it's really hard to tell if he's telling the truth or, um, or not. And it's absolutely clear that she's trying to get him back. Uh, you know, that one is evident. Is she trying to get him back because she doesn't believe it's over? Is she trying to get him back because he said it's a pause? I don't know. But she definitely is trying to get him back. Yeah, it is hard to to read what, what's really going on there because it could be any of those things. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Leslie. Clearly she she wants to be back in the picture um, you know, I know even sometimes when people do try to sever their contact with the affair partner, they will often do something either intentionally or unintentionally that leaves the door open a crack. Um, you know, one thing I might prayerfully consider doing is for the two of you together to write a very brief response um, that says something like, you know, I'm committed to working on my marriage. My wife is <laughs> reading this. Please do not contact me anymore, period. And and sending it, you know that that it's it's not giving her wiggle room to try to you know cajole him back somehow, or um, but you know even kind of seeing his willingness to to send something back with your. But if you do that, the thing that I think is really important to add is that he say if you contact me again. I'm going to share everything that you have said with my wife. Absolutely, that there's no more protected space that that she realizes there's no way that she's going to get to him with, you know, in, in a secret way and be able to share these things that any that she's making herself vulnerable and she's on the outside looking in, not the other way around. Yeah, because one way to see if he's being honest with you is. Chances are good, even if you sent that letter with him, that she's going to try again and seeing if he lets you know when she contacts him again right. will help. And as John mentioned um, earlier, potentially considering a polygraph, if your husband wants to prove to you that he's being honest and he's told you everything, that actually can be a really helpful way for you to begin to believe him. Yeah, it's amazing to me how often we'll get unfaithful partners who will come in to counseling and just say, well, you just need to trust me, you know, and, and why would you trust that person? Even if they're getting, even if they're being trustworthy, you have no basis for, for trusting them yet. Absolutely. So, so our, best wishes with yeah. that. Our final question says, any advice on the steps on how to decide whether to stay or go? Still in the home with my spouse, no kids. He is in the affair about a year now, on and off, uh, it appears. He doesn't want a divorce, nor want me to file a divorce. 
I notice he is coming home, not staying out like he used to. Then he will be gone again for one day until late. He compared his parents getting divorced and then remarried to us. He is talking to me a lot more, not about us or the affair, helping with things around the house as simple as taking the trash out again. He says it's hard to talk to me as he doesn't know what mood I will be in. I have explained my emotional arguments come from his actions or lack of actions. I don't want a divorce, yet I don't believe I should have to file one to force him to decide. Can any of this ever be overcome, or is it just best to walk away? I have continued to question my self-respect and dignity and to continue to hold out hope for a change by staying. Thanks for all you do. And I appreciate the question. Yeah, I, that's I, a really tough spot. I'm yeah, so sorry. I, I guess I would start by, you know, you know, first of all, by saying that I don't think he has the right to talk about it or not talk about it as he sees fit. You know, he's dumped this reality on you, and, and yeah, I'm sure it is uncomfortable to talk about, but it's uncomfortable for you to talk about, too. And I don't, I, you know, I, I think... Well, it's uncomfortable for you to live with. Yeah, I mean, part of seeing that they're really committed to changing is their willingness to engage it with you, not just sort of sweep it under the rug and hope it goes away. But but if the affair is still active, even if it's been been curtailed somewhat, that would be an unacceptable thing as far as I was concerned. I mean, I think, you know, you've got to see that he's first committed to really changing and then that he's following through with some kind of actions on on the change, that he's not just sort of passively, you know, going on about his life and, and and still kind of keeping the other option open sometimes or partaking of that option, uh, you know, I, I don't see how the marriage goes on in a healthy way as long as he's got any foot still in that in that pool at all. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of his willingness to work, um, I, I think sometimes we'll get these guys who, as long as they're able to kind of keep part of their affair going and there's no real consequence to it, they don't really see an incentive to working because they kind of feel like they're they can have their cake and eat it too. I I get all the perks of marriage and 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 yet I can you know step out every once in a while. To me, there can't be sort of a question of is he getting better with it? Is it's got to be is he committed to stopping it and changing changing his behavior altogether with it? And and ultimately, in terms of the question, you know, Leslie. Um, it's fond of saying that the only reason to stay is because God's telling you to, and the only reason to go is because God's telling you to. And and I, I would want you to be very prayerful about that, but if you were going to stay, I would want it to be because you're seeing a, a real commitment and follow-through on, on his part. Right. Um, and I don't know what state you live in, um, but you may want to um, make an appointment with an attorney not necessarily to, to file for divorce, but um, to get more information because depending on the state that you're in, even um, initiating a legal separation might be something that um, is possible that you may want to consider. Um, the thing that I would have you consider is it's possible that he doesn't want to lose you and it's possible that he's not willing to break it off with her. And um, I don't know many people who would be willing to stay in that situation forever. And unless he's 
willing to do something differently, chances are good he's not going to make a move, and you're going to have to. And I know that seems incredibly unfair and like the burden's on your shoulder, but there may be days he thinks, oh, I'm going to stay in the marriage, and there may be days he thinks, oh, I'm going to, you know, keep this relationship outside the marriage. And a person can go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth for a very extended period of time. And sometimes they have to um, be in a situation where they know they can't have both before they're willing to consider what they're going to do. And um, and I am sorry because that potentially puts a really tough burden on you, but I wouldn't want you to lose your mind by trying to figure out what's going on from his actions and his movements as you're on the outside of all of this and not being let in. Yeah, and he could fluctuate and stay in that holding pattern indefinitely. Yeah. So best wishes with that decision. And thank everybody, you know, thanks everybody for the great questions. And wish you all the best in, in your ongoing recovery and, and know that there is life on the other side of this. There is. And as you would never choose to be in these circumstances, we respect you for trying to use these circumstances well. Good night. Good night, everybody.